Hello, I'm Jonathan Smith. I'm the lead pastor at One Church TO, and you're listening to the teaching time from our weekend gathering. We're an imperfect community of over 70 nationalities and five generations who are attempting to follow and shine Jesus in the greater Toronto area. Our vision, it's so simple. We wanna help people from all walks of life know God, love people, and in turn, impact our city for good. We've designed these weekends to be meaningful, challenging, and encouraging, and I hope that's what you get from listening. We're talking about, in the middle of a series called Strange Happenings, uh, I want to talk tonight about language. Now, languages are hard to learn. I've tried. I, I think I have some sort of impediment towards them, but I know many people that are part of One Church Steel, you, you speak multiple languages, but languages are difficult to learn. And one of the strangest and most peculiar languages on this great planet of ours is Welsh. Did you know that in the Welsh language, there are over 20 words, over 20 words for the word yes? It's complicated. And in fact, a few years ago, uh, a video went viral when Liam Dutton, a meteorologist, was able to pronounce a village that has over 58 characters in it in Wales. Actually, why don't you take a listen to what he said? Now today we had a big contrast in temperature across the UK, just 12 degrees over coastal parts of eastern England with cloudy skies, but in the sunshine in northwest Wales at RAF Mona, just up the road from the temperature got to 21 Celsius at 70 in Fahrenheit. Uh, did you catch that? If you didn't, I, here, here's the name of the town. 58 characters long, that's the name of the town. Now, I get a challenge for you, One Church CEO. Listen, if any of you are able to pronounce that, you might need to find the video, slow it down. If you're able to pronounce it and tag us on one of our social media channels, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, post that video tagging us. First five people to do it, I've got a coffee card for you, we'll be sending towards you. But that is a long word. That's a very difficult word. And if you're not a Welsh speaker, it sounds funny. It sounds un unintelligible. It just feels confusing. It doesn't even make sense, does it? Uh, in fact, let's listen to the pronunciation one more time of this word. Just up the road from It makes no sense unless you're a Welsh speaker. But when you translate it in English, it makes a lot of sense. It's actually describing the location. In Welsh and English, the actual translation of this town is, it's St. Mary's Church in the hollow of White Hazel near the rapid whirlpool of Lancelio of the Red Cave. That's a, <laughs> it's a lot to say in English, let alone that long 58-character Welsh word that's there. Now, I want to talk about, because it's interesting, even a strange utterance like, what Liam Dutton just did so well on, the, on screen while live on air in his meteorological, meteorological little, I can't even talk tonight, in his weather forecast. Uh, just like that strange utterance has an actual meaning, I want to talk about other strange utterances in Scripture. We're going to talk about tongues tonight. Now, what's interesting is this is a topic that divides churches, denominations, even people that might be a part of one church deal. There's some people that wish we talked a lot more about this. There are other people that are quite uncomfortable about this. So I want to ask a favor of all of you. I want to ask you to maybe suspend any sort of judgment. Maybe just put aside all of kind of the, maybe some baggage or misunderstandings you've collected along the way or some guilt or whatever it looks like. Or maybe if you're brand new here, you don't even know what I'm going to talk about. Great. 
We're going to lean into a strange happening. I'd love you to turn your Bible or a Bible app to Acts chapter 2. This is the kind of birth of the church, and this is a moment that we're going to see recorded here in Acts chapter 2. We're going to look at the first four verses where we see this act of speaking in tongues kind of get its start in scripture. So it starts out this way. In Acts chapter 2 verse 1, the, uh, Luke records this. He says, when the day of Pentecost came. Now, this is where Pentecostals get their name. We're, we're Pentecostal church, and this is kind of where we get our name. Pentecost, though, is just a Greek word for 50. It just means 50. Because there's a Jewish festival that was 50 days long called Pentecost. And so Pentecostals don't get their name from the festival. They get their name from this passage and what happened during the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem oh, centuries ago. So that's kind of the heartbeat of how this all got started. It's when the people of God kind of got re-energized, relaunched, rebooted as a, as a church and a movement. So it goes on to say this, and this is what we need to understand about the audience that would have been in, that, that Luke is talking about. They gathered in the upper room, uh, waiting on God. Who were they? Well, they were people that had experienced salvation. They had experienced a moment where they had been filled with the Holy Spirit. See, when Jesus said, when you decide to follow him and you come under his leadership and you begin to follow him, his spirit fills us. We're filled with the Holy Spirit at that moment. So all of the people that this passage is about, they've experienced a moment where they've surrendered their life to Jesus and they've been filled with his spirit. They've also experienced a moment where they were water baptized uh, because Jesus asked all of his followers, when you choose to follow me, be baptized in water. Now that's kind of a strange happening when you think about it to kind of either in a lake or a river or now in churches in a, in a tank, uh, you kind of go underwater in front of other people and come up out of it. Why? It's kind of a strange happening. Well, we are identifying, when Jesus asks us to do it, we're identifying with his death going under and his resurrection power. But what more importantly is happening to us, it doesn't make us more saved doesn't make you more special. You don't need to be water baptized to, to go to heaven someday. Jesus asks you to do it because it's really a coming out party. It's a publicly recognizing that I'm a follower of Jesus. And it really, it's dipping your toe into the missional life that he calls you in. See, once you experience Jesus, he asks us and we're commanded to share the good news of Jesus with others. So baptism is kind of a kind of key moment of obedience and it's a chance to declare to others that we're followers of Jesus. But you know, just remember this little formula. This will help some of you because religion likes to add things on. So let me help you here. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Uh, it's not Jesus plus water baptism equals salvation. No, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. I mean, when we turn our hearts to Jesus, put our trust in him, trust him to be the leader of our life, we're in. His spirit fills us. But this is our next step. It's water baptism. So in Acts chapter two, these are people that have experienced salvation. They've been filled with his spirit. They've experienced water baptism. And then we're going to see in this chapter, they experience spirit baptism. Spirit baptism is a subsequent event different than these two. It's a moment in the lives of those who follow Jesus where they experience a moment where they're built up. They're able, built up and empowered to share Jesus with others with a new boldness and confidence. 
but they're also opened up to a brand new dimension of prayer. And we're going to explore that tonight. But let's keep reading what Luke has to say in Acts chapter 2. He says this, When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of violent wind came from heaven. Can, can you imagine what this would have been like if you were one of those people in the upper room? Now, the interesting thing, Luke wants us to know that it was like, it wasn't a violent wind. It was like a violent wind. So probably a roaring sound that was going through there. What, what Luke is helping us to see and what we need to understand, this was not some sort of cathartic, internal, psychological experience that the people had in the upper room. They all heard it. They all felt it. They all saw it. This is a real tangible moment where where the supernatural invades the natural and something dramatic happens. And it goes on to say this, and filled the whole house, the wind filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. Again, I mean, these two elements of wind and fire, I mean, it would have been terrifying at one level, and incredibly exhilarating at another level. I mean, this would have been when the mighty rushing, roaring wind in there, little flames of fire resting on the heads of the people that were gathered in that room. I mean, friends, if you're following a God that's palatable, he's acceptable, he's controllable, he's tameable, then you're not really following the living God. If you're following a God that is uncontrollable, untainable, uncontainable, then you know you're following the living God. Because, I mean, God, if anything, if anything else, uh, if, we're, if we're in the presence of God, it's anything but boring. If you're in the presence of the living God, it's anything but comfortable. It's comforting, but it's not comfortable. I mean, when have you last been stretched in your spirituality? Has it become quite comfortable, like something that just all makes sense and you can check all the boxes and everything feels right? Or, or is there uncomfortableness, like, like God could do something. God could change something. God could disrupt something. Because God is constantly at work and we see in this passage something significant happening here. What Luke wants us to understand is what changed this rather uneducated and insignificant group of people to leave that room and change the world. Something changed in them. Something changed in the whole power dynamic. They were, they were the ones that were disadvantaged in the culture and society of the day. They were Galileans. They, they, they weren't a part of the, the upper echelons of leadership or anything. But there's a dynamic change as the creative energy of heaven comes down to this moment and transforms this kind of anemic group of people who had previously in chapters before were cowering in fear for their lives to all of a sudden be filled with the Spirit, it says here. It says this, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak into other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. I mean, this is a dynamic moment in history. They're filled with the Spirit. In other words, something from out there comes down and comes into them and begins to work inside of them. Now, this puts us in conflict with what we understand about the world and even the culture around us. Because in the world around us, we see problems outside of us as something that needs to be conquered, 
But there are problems that are out in work and relationship problems. There are all kinds of problems in our life, but we have something inside of us that's able to deal with the problems. Christianity actually says, no, the, the main problem is inside of you. And you need something from outside of you, God, to come inside of you, to give you the power to deal with the problems that you face in life. And those that had gathered in the upper room on that festival on the day of Pentecost, they gathered there because they were waiting to experience what in the previous chapter Jesus said they would experience. In verse one, verse five, uh, chapter 1, verse 5, he said this, John baptized with water, but in just a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. You'll be immersed, just like a baptism of water, be immersed in the Holy Spirit. These are people who had decided to follow Jesus already. They've been filled with his spirit. These are people who have been baptized in water, but they had come to this moment where there's a subsequent different event, which kind of is marked by this moment of them speaking in tongues. It's strange. It's beautiful if you read the rest of the story. It's transformative. But I mean, it's strange to our modern ears and our modern minds. In Acts chapter 2, the initial outpouring of God's spirit on his people enabled them to speak in human languages. So if you read Acts chapter 2, they left the room and they began to speak in languages from all over the world. And in that festival, people gathered from all over the world to celebrate Pentecost. They heard these Galileans speaking in this unusual, in their own languages. And they're thinking, how did they learn it? It was a miraculous empowerment to witness about the wonders of God. Something incredible happens here. But when you read about speaking in tongues in other parts of the scripture, it's, it's not quite like this. It's mysterious. It, it's different. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, Paul kind of touches on it. He says this, If I speak with the tongues of men or of angels... Now, what Paul is doing is Paul is leaning into a long-held tradition and belief by the Hebrew people that there was a heavenly language, that there was a language of angels. And Gordon Fee, the great theologian, he writes about this. He said, Jews already believed that angels had their own language and that the Spirit of God could cause someone to speak it. As a rule, incomprehensible to listeners and sounding like gibberish. Kind of like Welsh sounds to me. It, this was something they already believed, that God was able to inspire an English, like a, a person to be able to speak this heavenly language and even understand it. Now, this is strange. I'm admitting this. This is strange to our modern ears. Now, if you've been around church for any length of time or around uh, maybe a Pentecostal or charismatic church, and you know a little bit about speaking in tongues. It can be confusing at times, because in the Bible, there's two kind of venues for tongues. There's the public uh, practice of speaking in tongues. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 to 14, it kind of covers that. There's kind of rules around it and how it works, but there's a public thing, and that's always practiced in community. Now, around here, we feel like community groups are one of the best places for us to begin to practice some of the spiritual gifts of God mentioned in 1 Corinthians 12 to 14. But I'm not really getting into that today. I want to focus on the private use of tongues. We practice this in private, where you have this moment where you feel the empowering and the enablement of the Holy Spirit to do things on earth that maybe you didn't think were, you were able to do. 
I first experienced speaking in tongues when I was 17 years old. Uh, it was not even something I was looking to experience. It's something that happened to me while I was worshiping Jesus. And that has made quite a difference in my life for all these years later. I want to pause and I want to show you a little video of a man named N.T. Wright. Now, Dr. Tom Wright or N.T. Wright is the leading New Testament theologian in the world today, in our modern era. He's a bishop in the Church of England, and he's sharing how he experienced the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and he began to speak in other tongues. Why don't we give it a little listen? In 1986, I was leaving Montreal and was going to be coming back to Oxford as a college chaplain as well as a university lecturer. And I was quite nervous about that because I had been in academic work um, for several years and the thought of suddenly being plunged into a vivid little community um, where there were uh, hundreds of people who would come to me for spiritual mm. counsel and help and I wouldn't have a clue what to say to them. I remember sharing this with a cousin of mine who was in a quiet way a charismatic Christian in Canada, in Winnipeg. Um, and she said, well, it may well be that God will give you a gift like the gift of tongues. And she prayed with me and the next thing I knew, I was praying in tongues. Right. Um, very startled. This wasn't supposed to happen. <laughs> I hadn't known when I was going to stay with this cousin that any <laughs> such thing was on the agenda at all. Right. But she was absolutely right that the many, many times, that was 1986, so 30 years ago and plus, um, when I have needed to pray into a particular situation, but have actually no, I have had no idea of a specific thing that I ought to be praying for. I have found on many, many, many occasions that the use of tongues in private prayer, I've never exercised this gift in public, I have mm. no particular desire to, mm. um, has enabled me to hold people and situations within the love of God mm. in a way which for some reason seems to be different from just saying, I pray for so-and-so. I can relate to what N.T. Wright is talking about. In a moment where you feel ill-equipped, uh, what, what do we do? Or even in the way we pray, we don't even know what to pray. And the use of the gift of tongues is incredible in those moments. So I'm going to talk about two little take-homes for you, and we're going to pray in just a moment. The first one is this, that tongues actually builds us up. Or I, another way I... I I thought about putting it in it. It could be tongues courages us up. It courages us up. It builds us up. That's what it does. It gives us confidence. It gives us, it gives us courage. How? Well, in Acts chapter 2, verse 13, we get a picture of what it looked like when people were baptized in the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues. It says this in verse 13. Others in the crowd ridiculed them, saying, they're just drunk, that's all. They're just drunk, that's all. Now, why, why did they think they were drunk? Well, before we jump to that, the Apostle Paul picks up on this language and in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, he says this, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. What does it mean? <laughs> how, how is it like being drunk? Well, I, I think the idea around this is simply this. When, when they were experiencing something that looked like they might be inebriated, because they were experiencing a, joy, a joyful fearlessness. See, they were without any inhibition publicly sharing Jesus with the crowd that day. 
They, they, had, they were so happy, they didn't care what other people ha- thought. They were so happy, they weren't afraid of every, anything. Have you ever been in that place, baby? I love when kids are like that, when they're younger and they're so happy about something. They don't care if anyone can hear them shouting. They don't care about uh, what they're saying. There's an inhibition around that joyful fearlessness. And the people, the first followers of Jesus, they're feeling this joyful fearlessness. And it reminded the crowd that was watching that maybe they were drunk. Because when you drink alcohol or too much of it, it takes away those inhibitions, right? There can be a happiness that you experience there. In a sense, it's kind of like that. In another sense, it's nothing like that. See, when you experience the baptism of the Holy Spirit and speak in other tongues, there's a joy joyful fearlessness because it's like you're being swept up into the father's arms and being reminded how loved you are by him but the holy spirit doesn't do it like alcohol does he doesn't do it all like alcohol and that's why paul says don't be drunk on wine but be filled with the holy spirit because it, those of you who have a medical background you know alcohol is a depressant it's a depressant now some of you might say wait no uh, people who drink alcohol tend to be happy Uh, Well, it doesn't mean it makes you depressed, but it depresses functions of your brain. So in other words, it makes you, it doesn't make you depressed, but it it, it kind of inebriates or, or deadens parts of your brain or your thinking. So the reason you're happy when you're drunk is because you're stupid. <laughs> it's because you're not, you're not bothered. You're less aware of reality. You know, there's a saying, uh, you know, people drown their sorrows in, in alcohol or something like that. It's becoming detached from the reality around them that makes them happy. So it's less aware. They're not bothered by those things anymore because th- those areas of your brain that are remembering that and recalling it and maybe replaying it are now depressed in that moment. Now, the Holy Spirit works quite differently, though. Alcohol is a depressant. The Holy Spirit is not. Here's what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit gives you joy through intelligence, not through stupidity. The Holy Spirit shows you the reality that you are loved and that your future is sure. Friends, this is so cool. It says, wait a minute. The only person's opinion and power that even matters, loves you to the stars and back, would do anything for you, has given up everything for you, and will walk with you always and love you to the ends of the earth. I mean, that's what you're reminded in that moment. And that's why there's this joyful fearlessness about you. And that when you pray in the spirit, your confidence and your courage begins to build up and you begin to be reminded. The Holy Spirit doesn't remove the reality of life. It reminds you of the bigger reality of life. It's not like you don't remember the problems or the situations that are in front of you, but now you are remembering the, the, the closeness, nearness of God, the power of God that's available, your future that's so sure, you know you're loved, you know you have a treasure, and you know you need to share that treasure. So there's this building up that happens when we pray in the Spirit. And, you know, Paul would be, say in one portion of Scripture that he prays more than, than others. He must have needed a lot of it. Because when we pray in the Spirit, we begin to feel encouraged. We begin to find ourselves in courage. 
And there's a second thing that N.T. Wright talked about in his little uh, testimony. He said, tongues opens us up to a brand new dimension of prayer, a whole new dimension of prayer. In Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul put it this way. He said this, in Romans 8, he said, in the same way, the Holy Spirit helps us where we are weak. We do not know how to pray or what we should pray for, but the Holy Spirit prays to God for us with sounds that cannot be put into words. I think Andy Wright said this, that when he's faced situations, he didn't know what, quite what to pray. He prayed in the spirits, prayed in tongues. And he was able to hold people, and I love that, hold people in the love of God in a way that maybe he could not normally do in the way he would have faced it. I know firsthand what he's talking about. I face many situations, whether it's here at this church or in my life, where, where I don't know how to pray. I don't know what I should be praying. Now, uh, let me be clear. I know what I want from it, but I'm not sure what I want is what God wants. I know what others want me to be praying, but I'm not sure how we understand this situation is how God understands this situation. So I, I pray in tongues for my enemies. I pray in tongues for my family. I pray in tongues for my church family because I believe God is shaping my words to pray things into people's lives and over people's lives and that go way beyond my comprehension of the situation or God's will for them in their life. Now, if you've been filled with the Holy Spirit and you, you baptized in the Holy Spirit and you've spoken in other tongues at any point in your life, I want to encourage you to practice it this week, to pray daily in tongues. Now, I'm a person who needs rituals because this is not something I do normally, naturally. So, you know, my ritual is when I get in the shower in the morning, I, I spend time praying in tongues. I'm building myself up, encouraging myself, uh, finding my confidence and connection with God intimately, but I'm also praying into situations that I'll be facing that day and praying for people and praying for our church. So we're built up as we pray in tongues and we're also opened up to a whole new dimension of prayer. So before I pray for you, let me, let me pull this together. The, I told you the day of Pentecost or Pentecost festival, Pentecost just means 50 in the Greek language because it was to signify 50 days after the Passover in the Exodus story, the children of God were at the, the bottom of Mount Sinai. And it was a tremendous moment where God spoke to his people. Well, there's a parallel between the day of Pentecost and Mount Sinai. There's a parallel there. In both, in both cases, God comes down and meets them. In both cases, there's fire and wind. And in both cases, there's a message. When God came to his people in Mount Sinai, the message was the Ten Commandments. It was the law. It was so that we would know the difference between right and wrong. But in the end, the law condemned us. Because you and I, none of us are capable of keeping the law. We all fall short of what God's standard is. But on the day of Pentecost, there's a different type of message. It's not the Ten Commandments. It's the gospel. It's good news. And the good news is this, that someone came and fulfilled the law. Someone came and lived the life that we were meant to live, but we were incapable of living. And something great even happened. Amazing, miraculous happened. That that one, Jesus, gives us his perfect record, his righteousness, so that we aren't condemned by the law anymore 
but we are filled with his spirit and restored back into relationship with God. It's an incredible story here. In Mount Sinai, everyone was afraid. In the day of Pentecost, everyone was emboldened. Thanks for listening. If you found this helpful, we hope you join us at one of our campuses if you're in the GTA for a weekend gathering. If you're listening from somewhere else in the world, we'd encourage you to join us at onechurch.to slash live. We believe everyone can be a part of what Jesus is doing both in our community and in our city. So if you'd like to connect with us at a deeper level, visit us at onechurch.to slash next steps. See you next time.